Hello, I'm Ellie Harris. And I'm Mark Boucher. And welcome to Poking Books. A podcast where I introduce a mystery author who will explain their book through three books which influence that book. And somehow I have to guess what their book is about. And Ellie will know absolutely nothing about the author or their book until they sit down to record with us. Their name, what kind of book they've written, I will know nothing until they enter the studio. So it's quite exciting that today's guest is over the other side of the world almost and it's daytime there and nighttime here. Mm-hmm. We've got an actual New Yorker. Is she a New Yorker? She's not a New Yorker. No, she's not. Got a real um, life American. So this is this is why been... Zoom's been so good because we've we've now been able to talk to authors like it would have taken Casey a really long time and cost quite a lot of money to have her here to meet her in person. So wonderful. And if she'd flown over here, I mean quite how she would have done it during the pandemic mm. and then come to our spare room. I feel she might have been slightly <laughs> like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Was that maybe I'm not too into whatever this place is. <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. It's a lovely spare room. It is a lovely spare room. Um, but Casey was in it virtually. And now I think it's time we go and meet Casey. I'd really like that. Ellie, this is Casey. Hi, Casey. Hi. So, Casey, do you want to give us um, your three facts about yourself? Yeah, I thought I would start with, um, so there's one fact about my reading life, which is that I, I read the Bible every day, um, which I don't know how useful that is to sorting out who I am. But I also love to drive, which is probably a little more useful in contextualizing the book I wrote. Um, and the third thing is my my wife is also a writer. She's she's a staff writer at the New Yorker too. Well, that's an even bonus fact that Casey is a staff. Yeah, writer that, there's a lot of detail. Yeah, <laughs> that's a bonus fact. Okay. Oh, it's been a while since we've done one of these, hasn't it? <laughs> I reckon it is a. I reckon you've written a book that is travel guide to. Uh, there's a laugh that's there's this already is a book I wish I, yeah i mean i wish i had written already the travel guide to anything the travel guide to best food places in the entirety of america i'm aware that's a really big place but that's what i'm going with that's my first guess Hey, would you have written that book, Casey? Gladly. I mean, I'm about to call my agent and pitch it. I really like it. <laughs> I got to drive a lot for my book, but I, I didn't get to eat that much. So I like the idea of creating more occasions for, you know, dining like a fat cat everywhere in the country. Why not? Why not indeed? Work and pleasure combined. <laughs> okay. Um, Casey, did you want to tell us about um, your first book then that has influenced your book? Yeah, I'm going to start with a book called The The Lost City of Z uh, by David Gran. And I I love The Lost City of Z because it's a structurally dynamic book. It moves through a couple of different locations and it moves through a couple of different chronologies. And it's a Chinese box of a book. You know, you kind of move in and out of these stories and they reveal things about each other. And David Grant is just juggling a lot of plot, geography and history. Um, so I, I'm quite indebted to that book because I, I borrow a bit of the structure for mine. So what actually happens within the book as well? Yeah, he's looking into the disappearance of, um, you know, one of these grand British explorers, not quite as well known today, though very famous in his own time, who went missing looking for the, the, the lost city of Z, this, you know, 
Fountain of Youth, um, City of Gold, one of these quest cities. And he went missing, as did his son. And then over the years, dozens of other people had gone missing too, trying to find his remains or what happened to him. And David Grand, the kind of the, the most external version of the story is David Grand, the reporter in the aughts, you know, in the, in the late 90s, early aughts, going in search of the same history and trying to find, you know, what had ever happened to Colonel Fawcett. And so, you know, you it's a quest story and I like that. It's, it's about a succession of mysteries, which is analogous to my book. You know, there's the kind of first order question of, well, what happened to Fawcett's original expedition? And then there are these second, third, and fourth order questions of what happened to the expeditions in search of that expedition. And I like it because it, it also just looks at the way a story was told at the time and the way we tell it now and the, the way cultures change and what was valorous in one generation is morally suspect in another. And I think, again, that's something I was trying to do with my book. You know, there's something that happens. There's a historical plot, but then there's an ongoing and contemporaneous effort to make sense of it and figure out whether the story that was told at the time is accurate or useful or deleterious in some way. So I like that about David's book. But, you know, my book has nothing to do with the Amazon or, you know, with an expedition in search of gold. I, there's a financial plot in my book, but a very different one. But I, I, I love David's book and the way that it does manage to juggle a couple of different um, it related but distinct plots. Great, great. And that's really given us loads as well. So what are you, what are you thinking now, Ellie? There's just so much. You know, and like you've got nothing and then you have like a few little bites and you're like, but which one do I choose? It's a murder mystery about something that happened years and years and years ago and facts are coming to light about um, a situation that was handled really badly. I don't know what yet, but you mentioned finance. And it's discovered by a, a trucker. This, this uh, scandal is discovered by a trucker and it's how it comes to light further down the line. That's very vague, isn't it? But also oddly specific. I like the coming to light further down the line is, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good guess. Parts of that are completely true and parts of that are completely rubbish. <laughs> it's good to know. Uh, well, I gave you the least useful of the books. So um, maybe we'll keep yeah. moving periodically. Yeah, um, this is a lot more useful. The other book that, um, that influenced my book is In Cold Blood. Um, the Truman Capote true crime book about a, a family that, a, a home invasion and um, murder story in Kansas. And, you know, this incredible work of new journalism that, you know, occupied the perspective of the murderers and looked multi-directionally at this crime and how it affected a community and how the criminal justice system did or did not take into account the circumstances of the accused or handle their case properly or improperly. And, you know, just this ongoing attempt to make sense of crime in a small town um, and, and a work of journalism. So a nonfiction book that, that I really admire and am, am deeply indebted to, and that to go even further um, has, has quite a lot to do with one of the main characters in my book. Mm. Is it a sort of shared 
influence without giving too much away or just just thematically similar uh yes (laughs) (laughs) i like that casey's playing the game properly Mm -hmm. this is good very very enigmatic okay so what do you reckon ellie Mm. are you sticking with your um trucker discovered story no i'm not you definitely you've gone on murder mystery and you definitely have murder i'm sticking sticking with murder don't record that bit don't play that that's going to be used against me isn't it for future um i'm gonna stick with the murder mystery theme but i don't think it's non-fiction anymore because you're right journalism i think that's going to be a thread and there has been a case years and years ago and things have come to light and there's been injustice against someone oh maybe it's the big guns trying to cover something up like there's a reason that you mentioned a small town maybe something's happened in a small town but it's like ended up being this big case and interlinked to all this like underworld political governmental stuffs with lots of murder so it's beginning to sound like a very quite a more mainstream kind of book than we'd originally looked at about as a murder and Mm -hmm. government conspiracies and stuff like that so yeah okay that is a it's thematically similar but kind of broader so yeah Uh okay i feel way off (laughs) casey do you want to give us the third book yeah sure although again i'm i'm kind of making notes for the next few books i want to write (laughs) i feel like these are so welcome Right, yeah, it's just, you know, you know, right on the back page or something. That's yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so the third one is is really um, well. I fear it's it's misdirection in one sense because it's a novel, um, but but it's really just an extraordinary hint in in other ways. And um, it's a book that I've loved since I was a kid, and and actually, well into adolescence was my my favorite book, um, and that's To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, so Harper Lee's novel again about a small town, um, about some of the things you've 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 you know set upon these early notions of justice and injustice and making sense of the world and what we do or don't understand and how we learn things that that other people wish to keep hidden or to misrepresent, but that we come to understand more accurately or clearly. And so I've loved that book for a long time. I love the way it sets up a geography and a space and tells you about the kind of deep character of people through their interactions with one another. And um, so that's the third book. And again, it's, it's misdirection because it's a novel, but um, quite useful in a lot of other respects. Could you just give us a very sort of very potted version of the, the plot? Yeah, sure thing. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird is um, narrated by a, a little girl named Scout Finch, and her father's a lawyer, and he's been assigned a case to represent um, a black man who's been wrongly accused of rape. And the, um, the, the, the book is about her kind of moral awakening and her experience learning about the town where she's grown up and prejudice and bias within that community. And to some extent, it it is about the kind of consciousness we develop when we begin to think about the plight of other people, people whose lives are different than ours. Um, So it's a beautiful novel about race and difference and diversity and and justice. It feels like it's a really interesting novel now as well, and particularly in the last few years since um, uh, Go Set a Watchman came out do you think it is sort of changed over time 
Yeah, I mean, certainly the the kind of public understanding of Lee has changed and our sense of, um, you know, the character of Atticus Finch and his his deep morality and his role in the community and the ways in which, you know, justice is a is a deep and complicated idea and we can live into it superficially or we can pursue it robustly. And um, certainly Watchmen has changed both in America and abroad, the the sense of Atticus as a moral leader or a um, or or someone who time passes by. So someone who in the 1930s seemed courageous and right on issues of race by the 1950s was um, a little more conservative, a little less ambitious, a little more resistant to progress. So there's been a lot of shuffling around people's understanding of Lee and that character and and both books in relationship to one another. Interesting. Plenty there. So Ellie, you've been told that this is somehow slightly to the side, but also the biggest hint ever. So what do you, <laughs> which is the super handy, you could go one direction or another there. What's, um, how's our trucker murder mystery story looking now? We'd, we'd well moved away from the trucker. The trucker is a, a long distant <laughs> Maybe there is a character in the book, though, that is a trucker that drives past one of the scenes, you know, but mm. you never know. I'm going to take a punt and given the kind of subject matter of to kill, a, to kill a Mockingbird, I think we're looking at some. Oh, oh, no, sorry. I had another thought in my head of that. Uh, I think it is looking at the idea of the abolition of slavery and how views have changed over the years and kind of all intertwined in there is like financial misconduct, murder, all of the dark, horrible stuff that comes with it, but how people's perceptions have changed over time. And I think it's a, a fictional, uh, a non-fiction, sorry, a non-fiction book. Okay, that is completely different direction. So, mm -hmm. okay. Brave and interesting departure, but race somehow part of it as well. Yeah. Okay. And lots of murder, like <laughs> maybe maybe just one of them, but like I reckon murder is a big part. Same of it. murder or different murderers? Who knows? You'll have to read it to find out, Mark. Yes, but Ellie, I'm asking <laughs> no. I'm asking you, one murder or several murderers? Maybe several, but it's by the order of one person. Ordering lots of murder. Okay, interesting. Right. Well, I think now the, the time has, has come. So you're sticking with nonfiction. Um mm -hmm related to somehow both a murder mystery and to do um, with p changing perceptions of 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 slavery but definitely a real life story yeah. um yeah okay i'm not sure how Our you're getting those two on. together but um it's definitely <laughs> one hell of an epic. Me, but that's the that's the the thrill of the podcast you could it could be anything Mark. you've definitely got something that's multi-layered <laughs> in here that's for sure casey could you tell us um your um Full name, the name of uh -huh. your book, and a little about what it's about. Yeah, so full name is Casey Sepp, and um, the title of the book is Furious Hours, but the subtitle is um, pretty useful and, and actually, you know, re reveals the game didn't go as badly as it seems. So Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. So it is nonfiction. Um, it is in some ways about you know, a, a revision or a revisiting of history. So partly Harper Lee. So it's partly a biography of her and how she came to write To Kill a Mockingbird and Ghost at a Watchman and the story of her early career mm -hmm. 
but two thirds of the book is about what happened after To Kill a Mockingbird, which is, you know, she went out to Kansas and she helped Capote write In Cold Blood. They were childhood friends and she was interested in crime reporting. So she was his assistant when he went out West to report that. And then, you know, 17 years later, she tried to write her own In Cold Blood. And that's the case at the heart of my book. So the first two thirds is a series of murders that took place in a small Alabama town that she found out about in 1977 and moved there to research and report and tried to write a book about. And there was this mystery of had she finished it, but never published it or never finished it. Or it was, there was all this uncertainty about what had happened with this true crime project, um, which had been very public and, and people in this town knew all about. And she had interviewed a lot of them. Um, and done all this work. So that's the book. It's that crime story plus this kind of abbreviated biography of, of her. The, the thing that first got me interested in this book was seeing a, um, a review of it in uh, the London Review of Books. And they, I think, started with the, with the story of the, the murder and the, the man who defended, um, the, who's a priest. Yeah. Was, yeah, it's it's interesting in its own right. And, you know, the, the, the short version of that is Harper Lee just knew a great story when she heard one. And she read this article in the New York Times in the summer of 1977. And it was announcing the murder of a preacher at a funeral. And it was the funeral of his stepdaughter, who he was accused of murdering. And that stepdaughter's uncle stood up at the funeral in front of 300 people and shot him three times in the head. So it was this gruesome crime that had been witnessed by hundreds of people and the trial of that vigilante, so the relative who murdered the reverend, revealed a lot of what had been happening in the previous years. The reverend was accused of killing five family members for the life insurance money. So he would take out these policies on his relatives and you know, staged these really elaborate crime scenes. They were made to look like automobile accidents. So you weren't wrong about the truck driving and the and the drivers and the kind of peripheral circumstances. But <laughs> um, he made an awful lot of money, and you know, he was he was wow. never convicted of any of the murders. And you know, he was just cashing out life insurance policy after life insurance policy. And so that's why this vigilante who felt you know there was nothing the police could do, nothing could stop him um, except for a, a, a righteous killing. And so, you know, it, it has a lot to, it has a lot in common with To Kill a Mockingbird, but um, obviously mm. different in the sense she, she um, really was trying to report it out and to do the nonfiction version and, you know, got the court transcripts, sat through one of the trials, interviewed the coroners, you know, was really building all of the evidence and material you would need for a nonfiction book. But, but yeah, it's true that mm. that crime story is just extraordinary. And one of her main sources was the lawyer for the vigilante who um, improbably had also represented the Reverend. So he had been the Reverend's criminal lawyer in all of those criminal investigations and murder trials, but he had also represented the Reverend in, um, just an extraordinary number of civil cases because they ended up having to sue some of the life insurance companies to force them to pay out. Um, and so the, this lawyer had represented the Reverend for um, 
almost 10 years and then went around, you know, turned right around once the Reverend had been murdered and defended his murderer. So that was why, you know, the people in this town, it was just the craziest thing that had ever happened there. And then it got even crazier when Harper Lee came to write a book about it. I mean, multi-layered, hey? Yeah. You did, you did say multi-layered. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. And why was it, because you said this, The Killing Mockingbird was his favorite book of yours. Why, what made you want to write Mm -hmm. a, a book sort of looking and bringing this aspect of her life? into it this unfinished was it called the reverend the book that she never published yeah she um she was gonna call it the reverend and um she had gotten to know this attorney but really seems to have been drawn to the character of the reverend and obviously some of to kill a mockingbird is interested in religious hypocrisy and the way that religious authority mm. operates in a moral community so it's it's interesting that that she was drawn to him and that you know, he would have been as big a character, it seems, as the lawyer who, to go back to your earlier point about Atticus Finch, was really just a complicated character, you know, beloved by some, hated by others, you know, applauded for his legal acumen, but but obviously, you know, questioned and challenged for his legal ethics and in some other cases, too. So she found these interesting characters, but, you know, I found my way to this story a few years ago when I was reporting on Ghost at a Watchman. So I had always been interested in Harper Lee's life and I, I love To Kill a Mockingbird. And when that second novel was announced, I um, went down like a lot of people to her hometown of Monroeville, Alabama, to find out you know, what the book was, where the manuscript had come from, whether she consented to having it published. And it was while I was down there working on a story for the New Yorker that I found out about the Reverend, about this true crime project and all of this reporting she'd done. And um, so it was wonderful for me, having having loved her work for so long, to get to think critically about her life and about the role that her books continue to play in our culture. And it's obviously, thankfully, a very different time um, than when To Kill a Mockingbird came out in 1960. But, um, you know, some of the same fraught conversations about race and obviously the same predicament about the biases of the American criminal justice system and the bias against black defendants and people of color and the different circumstances that that people meet when they seek justice in the courts. So, yes, it was just a really wonderful time to be thinking about her life and thinking about her work and trying to sort out, you know, the meaning of those books today and the kind of arc of her career. So it's a lot of fun for me. Trying to remember if we've actually skipped the detail that it, it was a similar setup with the the Reverend because he was a, a black preacher and that the lawyer was was white. So I guess there was parallels that she saw to the story she told in To Kill a Mockingbird and maybe did it help redefine that sort of thinking about Atticus Finch, do you think, Casey? Yeah, I think absolutely that, you know, to some extent, you know, look, Atticus Finch is a is a kind of autobiographical figure for her. Her own father was a lawyer. He had been a pillar of the community she was raised in. But she moved to New York um, when she was in her early 20s. And obviously, the difference between race relations in Manhattan in the late 1940s and early 1950s and small town Alabama were worlds apart. And she moved basically into an integrated lifestyle. You know, she rode buses for the first time with African-Americans on the bus and ate at integrated restaurants. And 
began in the way that a lot of people do to question the moral universe she had known as a young person. And for those who have read Ghosts at a Watchman, you know, that book takes very seriously the predicament of idolizing one's parents and then learning to reevaluate their virtues and to think critically about their lives. And, you know, what happened with To Kill a Mockingbird was the kind of simplification of that story, you know, the creation of a of a pure hero as opposed to a morally complicated one. And I think that some of that you know, I don't want to reduce it to an Oedipal complex, but but some of that friction with her own father and some of the complexity that had been shed in the revision of those two books was, I think, what attracted her to this story. So she found a complicated lawyer whose complexity she could revel in. Um, the, the lawyer at the heart of my book and, and at the heart of the Reverend had played um, a certain role in the civil rights movement, but he was a kind of, you know, moderate liberal as far as the national conversation went, although very far to the left in, in the American South at that time. And so she was just reveling in complexity in a way that, that Mockingbird had not. And I, I do think that's some of what drew her to this story because, you know, there's, there's a country mile between the kind of, you know, th there are a lot of people who live between the two poles of they believe in total equality or they would participate in a lynch mob. And I think that, you know, for purposes of her first book, you know, go go set a watchman tried to populate the, the space between those two political and, and ideological identities. But To Kill a Mockingbird really made it seem like you were one or the other. And I think with this true crime book, what was interesting to her was she was writing about much more complicated and morally ambiguous people. So I think it is part of what drew her to the story. And, and I feel lucky to have mm. gotten to kind of take that seriously, which is to say, to look at someone who's, you know, heroic in certain respects, but not in others, and and to really take seriously all the parts of his personality. Yeah, it's an incredible story that I don't think has been told before, and it's, um, mm. yeah, might as resurfaced. And it's, I, I think probably just for anybody who doesn't know, we should probably mention that the, the thing with Ghost Set of Watchmen as well is that, although it was released much later, we now, it was written first, and they now think that it was a first draft of Killing Mockingbird, is that right? Yeah, you've gotten it just right. It's so confusing because, you know, the way the book was marketed, I think a lot of people thought, oh gosh, for the last few decades, Harper Lee has been like writing her sequel and revising it and, you know, laboring over every sentence. But yeah, it's a bit of a time capsule. It's the first draft of this story that she wrote. And, you know, she was a very young writer. She was learning to write fiction at length. She had written some short stories, but it was her her first attempt at a novel. And, you know, it's it, it was two and a half years of revision that produced To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, so, yeah, I always, sometimes people say to me, you know, oh gosh, she became a worse writer. And I say, but you have to remember, this was the first draft. <laughs> you know, this, mm. this, was the, this was the young neophyte just trying to figure out how fiction worked. And with a very talented editor and a very long process of revision, she got to To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, so it is a bit confusing. The the kind of manuscript history of those books um, is is not straightforward. But um, there's a little bit of that in my book. You know, I give a kind of chapter of how those revisions worked and politically what was changing for her and and personally um, what was going on as she kind of reached an adult friendship with her father. There had been a period of time where it was more fraught and complicated and her own politics were changing, but um, I think they, they both kind of moved a little to the middle 
uh, she became a little less liberal over time and, and he became a little more so. Was there another book that you were trying to work on that your publisher, Casey, said like, no, don't write that, write something else <laughs> in the same way? That no, Lee? no, no. But I'll tell you, I when I was working on my book, you know, this the last third is really this biography of her. And I thought a lot about, you know, much of Harper Lee's life. People said, oh, she was a one hit wonder. Why wouldn't she publish another book? Would she ever? And, you know, I had thought some about when did people start saying that, you know, like if you're a band and you put out a number one single, like how quickly are you a one hit wonder? And it was kind of sobering to me. I swear to God, it was the day my, my book came out. You know, I, there's a way to contact me on my website and, you know, just someone wrote to say, Oh, I love furious hours. Um, I hope you don't become Harper Lee. Like, I hope you write another book. And I thought, oh my God, it's been one day, you know, to answer the question <laughs> of how quickly do you become a one hit wonder? And it's kind of sweet. Yeah. It's the thing people, every so often, every few weeks, I'll get a note from someone who just, you know, liked the book, but then says, you know, I really hope you don't become Harper Lee. Like, do do write something else. So yeah, I think poor thing. She must have really mm. just been saddled with those expectations from, you know, the summer of 1960 on. There's just no rest for the weary. You know, it's just, yeah, funny thing. Mm. And how do your, um, the two two of your facts, I could see more coming into this. Maybe it's all three, but mm. does um, both reading the Bible every day and driving come into the book at all? Yeah, I mean, I like to think that so I, I live not far from where I grew up in Maryland, and I grew up in and, and still live in, in a small town in a part of the kind of, you know, mid Atlantic that fancies itself southern because it's very agricultural. So, and I grew up going to church and, um, you know, knowing the families in that church and having known, you know, previous iterations of them. And so I like to think that some of that was why things went so well in Alabama. You know, I had a great time when I was down there reporting and I think in some important ways, both both understand and love and feel concern about changing the dynamics of some of these communities. So um, I think that there are parts of America that have really wonderful histories and, and most of the country has periods of racial injustice or ongoing injustice that they have not come to terms with. And that's true of where I grew up and it's true of where Harper Lee grew up and it's true where this story unfolded. So I would like to think that that knowledge of scripture and religion and the kind of dynamics of, of small religious communities was useful. And as far as driving goes, you know, it's really, it's a rural part of the state. You know, this book takes place in Coosa and Tallapoosa County and Coosa County is one of the most rural in the state of Alabama. So you've got to drive everywhere and she loved to drive. So I think that all kind of comes together when you read the book. And, you know, the same thing is true, funnily enough, for my wife, poor thing, not long after we met, I said, you know, I've just, I've just sold this book and I, I have to go and spend all this time in Alabama. And, you know, she's an atheist Jew uh, who, you know, lived quite a lot of her adult life in Brooklyn, but God bless her, just said like, all right, fine. I guess we're moving to Alabama for a little while and learned to love it and, you know, got used to the waffle houses and the huddle houses and Southern cuisine. But um, yeah, got a lot of writing done while we were down there and, and I think came to admire it too and to see it as a beautiful but complicated place where, you know, we know some of the story, but not all of it. And, you know, mm -hmm. to bring real humility to our 
the the kind of stereotypes we carry of other people in other places and to be cautious about them and be as willing to revise our opinions of other people as we hope they are of us. So yeah, all three of those, I guess, have something to do with the book. And somehow also the eateries um, linked them. Yeah, it's true. Kind of what Ellie guessed. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Ellie, yeah I think I was, I was trying to remember. Bang on the money right at the beginning. Yeah, I was about to say, I think actually I did thank, you know, one of these like 24-hour diners in Alabama because it's true. They had, you know, <laughs> coffee and internet at two in the morning when everything else had closed, Great. you know, six hours before. But yeah, mm. no, you weren't far off. And I'll tell you just that vigilante, that man who murdered the reverend in the funeral home in front of 300 people, something I don't know why it didn't yeah. pop into my head at the time. He was a truck driver. So actually you had a oh kind of God. spooky, yeah, you had a kind of spooky Stop intuition it. that I I <laughs> thought, no, no, she's totally wrong. And then thought about it. Thought, well, gosh, it's true that that's what Robert Burns did for a living. So you, you weren't that wow. far off. Yeah. Well, well, well. I think every one of your guesses had a little bit that went into it so just like on the periphery I've got all these like little ingredients that just haven't made the cake for mm -hmm. me even switching from um fiction to non-fiction well and frankly I mean I just can't tell you when someone first told me the story of the reverend who had you know allegedly killed five family members and then was murdered at the funeral of his last victim you know I obviously thought it was made up and over and over again mm -hmm. when people hear this they just they can't believe it even before you get to Harper Lee. Um, so I, I don't think categorize, you know, the, the, the stranger than fiction is a cliche for a reason. And we live yeah. in strange times politically and, and um, environmentally in every other way, I guess. But certainly this story is one where you, you couldn't have made it up. There's just so much about it. You know, the lawyer defending them both. There are just so many things about it yeah. that are improbable. So cool. So many. Yeah like you say, improbable, improbable layers. Fantastic. And it's one of those things you find out one thing and then you find out the next thing. And it's like, no, no, not that as well. Yeah, totally. Amazing. Did you want to read a short section from Furious Hours? Yeah, um, I often just read the prologue, which is really short and um, sure. kind of sets it out. This um, so is the prologue to it. Nobody recognized her. Harper Lee was well known, but not by sight. And if she hadn't introduced herself, it's unlikely that anyone in the courtroom would have figured out who she was. Hundreds of people were crowded into the gallery, filling the wooden benches that squeaked whenever someone moved or leaning against the back wall if they hadn't arrived in time for a seat. Late September wasn't late enough for the Alabama heat to have died down and the air conditioning in the courthouse wasn't working. So the women waved fans while the men's suits grew damp under their arms and around their collars. The spectators whispered from time to time, and every so often they laughed, an uneasy laughter that evaporated whenever the judge quieted them. The defendant was black, but the lawyers were white, and so were the judge and the jury. The charge was murder in the first degree. Three months before, at the funeral of a 16-year-old girl, the man with his legs crossed patiently beside the defense table had pulled a pistol from the inside pocket of his jacket and shot the Reverend William Maxwell three times in the head. 300 people had seen him do it. Many of them were now at his trial, not to learn why he had killed the Reverend. Everyone in three counties knew that, and some were surprised that none had done it sooner, but to understand the disturbing series of deaths that had come before the one they'd all witnessed. One by one, over a period of seven years, six people close to the Reverend had died under suspicious circumstances. Through all the resulting investigations, the Reverend was represented by a lawyer named Tom Radney, 
whose presence in the courtroom that day wouldn't have been remarkable had he been, not been there to defend the man who had killed his former client. A Kennedy liberal in the Wallace South, Radney was used to making headlines, and this time he would make them far beyond the local Alexander City outlook. Reporters from the Associated Press and other wire services, along with national magazines and newspapers like Newsweek and the New York Times, had flocked to Alexander City to cover what was already being called the tale of the murderous voodoo preacher and the vigilante who shot him. One of the reporters, though, wasn't constrained by a daily deadline. Harper Lee lived in Manhattan, but still spent some of each year in Monroeville, the town where she was born and raised, only 150 miles away from Alex City. 17 years had passed since she'd published To Kill a Mockingbird, and 12 since she'd finished helping her friend Truman Capote report the crime story in Kansas that became In Cold Blood. Now, finally, she was ready to try again. One of the state's best trial lawyers was arguing one of the state's strangest cases, and the state's most famous author was there to write about it. She would spend a year in town investigating the case and many more turning it into prose. The mystery in the courtroom that day was what would become of the man who shot the Reverend Willie Maxwell. But for decades after the verdict, the mystery was what became of Harper Lee's book. Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, she disappears after that. I try and warn people if you're in it for Harper Lee, she just fades into the background until the last third of the book. So, you know, persevere if you're in it for her, but you know, there's murder, mayhem and fraud in the meantime. Do you feel like you started with a book that was going to be about Harper Lee, but then became about something else or did it just become wider than Harper Lee herself? Yeah, I mean, the truth is there had been a biography of Harper Lee about 10 years ago and I, I didn't want to do the same thing again. Um, and her life as a writer was interesting to me, but it seemed more interesting when set against these other two characters. So the first third of the book is about the Reverend Maxwell and the crimes he was accused of. And the second third is about Tom Radney, the lawyer and his political milieu and his legal career. And so I always just liked the three of them together. You know, it's, it's only by, it's a kind of curiosity of our culture that we decide novelists are more interesting than country lawyers or, you know, mm-hmm. small town crooks, as it were. And I, I liked the idea of the three of them together, not so much competing for attention, but but sort of bringing to light things about each other. And, you know, they meet in this spectacular moment. The prologue sets that out, the kind of one moment they're all in the room together, as it were, you know, the reverend's ghost at this trial, Tom defending the vigilante and Harper Lee watching the trial. But um, there's three, you know, separated by race and gender and socioeconomic status. So you just learn a lot about the America of, of the mid-century if you look at the three of them mm-hmm. and what opportunities they had or how their lives were circumscribed or forces kept them from pursuing certain opportunities or not. Um, so no, it was always going to be the three of them, this kind of tripartite structure. Um, that was wonderful, Casey. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thanks I think so much. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that Ellie got a little bit in all those yeah, guesses. Yeah, I like it. And gave it me, yeah, it gave me some ideas along the way too. Frankly, I should mm-hmm. write more about waffles and, you know, collard greens and everything else I ate while I was down there. So <laughs> We look forward to that sequel. Yeah, we'll do that sequel next. That'd be great. So your ghost setter watchman was um, making mental notes about your food for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. In 50 years time. Thank you so much. Yeah, Casey. thanks so much. Have a good night. Awesome. Cool. Thank you very much, Casey. Yes. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. So, apart from a bit of internet crackle, how was yeah. that? That was good, wasn't it? It was 
our first international podcast as in across the seas quite weird being dark here and daylight still there but <laughs> i didn't even notice that i was i was fully looking at the window behind her being like oh yeah i get that problem with my zoom as well where it like adjusts the light and i didn't didn't clock that in front of me it is blackness out of the window yeah it was slightly unfortunate that every now and then it was a sort of andy mcnab thing of it making her look like she was in silhouette but that, <laughs> that often happens to me if i sit next to the window but i mean yeah i, I feel like both of us was, was struggling to sort of stay stuff because there's so many elements to that story before you even get to harper lee it's absolutely chock-a-block full of like well, I mean, Casey said it best, like murder, fraud, all of that. There's a lot to unpack there. Diners, like a of a lot. waffles. Exactly. Truckers. And so interesting that um, Ghost Setter Watchman sort of has changed people's perception of Atticus Finch that apparently paints him in a slightly different light. And there was okay. this argument about whether she, in her sort of elderly state, had released it willingly or not or whether you know maybe she thought it was important to say these characters have nuance to them and they're not just mm. cuddly one-dimensional well it goes back to what Casey was saying at the beginning that you know you were either kind of all accepting or you were going out with your family to a lynching and I guess it's that that space in between and realizing that people do have flaws and that they aren't always perfect or there can be more to a story and, and very much like the book that she's written now it's it, there's the kind of headlines and there's just more to it and you unfold it and there's just so much more that trickles down um and I think that's why I was struggling to ask questions because I was like there's just so much like but this is incredible and how is this even true yeah extraordinary Incredible, incredible. So, um, yeah. Um, so, if you want to read um, Casey's book, the book is Furious Hours Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee um, by Casey Sepp. And yes, it is out at any place where you buy a book. <laughs> right. And now I think we're going to go and do something else because we're both very, very <laughs> You've been listening to Poking Books with Ellie Harris and Mark Bowsher. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Both of them are just at Poking Books. No hashtags, no underscores, just simply at Poking Books. You can also listen to the podcast at soundcloud.com forward slash Poking Books. Or wherever you get your podcasts from. And remember, if you do enjoy the podcast, please subscribe because it means more people will find us and listen to us. You've been listening to a Rabbit Island podcast and do tune in for the next episode very soon. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.